0: Good morning, welcome everybody. We're glad you could join us for our final time that we have to come to you via Facebook only That nobody here at church today. But next week, we'll be able to meet again gather together publicly. We're praising the Lord, giving him thanks for his goodness that uh, we are able to worship together again starting next Sunday. So we will again uh, live stream next week also, but we won't start at 1030. We'll just start at the, the preaching service. And the preaching service usually starts about 1045 to 11, somewhere in there. So uh, that's when you can tune in for Facebook Live if if you uh, choose to stay home next week. But for those of you who are uh, willing to and are uh, accepting the risk to come, next week we will gather here together for our regular Sunday school. And for our regular church service. So we're looking forward to get things started next week with Sunday school and church. It's also a busy week because we have a lot going on. It's Mother's Day next week. So uh, I know you can't take mom out to the restaurant or anything like that this year. You might have to plan a little bit more in advance this year. Make sure you get her something nice for Mother's Day. But uh, next week is Mother's Day. We'll celebrate that together in the, in the Lord's house together. And the uh, next week is also the typically the, the day that we would uh, have... Graduation, I know graduation has changed too this year, but we would still like to honor our graduates. We have four graduates, Zeke and Will and Trisha and Carrie are all graduating, and we would like to recognize them next week too. And so we have a lot going on next week, and we are looking forward to worshiping and praising our Lord and our Savior together in God's house uh, starting next week, and like I said, we will uh, do the Facebook live streaming. It won't start at 10:30, though. But tune in uh, when the preaching starts, about 10:45 uh, to 11, somewhere in that area. All right. Well, we would like to uh, get down to our our series. Our series is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. It's all about Jesus. It's about the Book of Revelation. The Book of Revelation. Its central key figure is Jesus, and Jesus is the one. Uh, whom we worship. He's the reason why we're here today. He's the one that brings us together. He's the head of our church. And so we would like to worship him uh, through the the scripture today, through the book of Revelation. I would just like to start out by reading the text. Uh, The text is the uh, first chapter, verses nine to the end of the chapter. This is about a vision that John had on the Isle of Patmos. This is what John writes. He says, I, John, both your brother and companion, in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, you write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. This is what he said. He said, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw the seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I felt his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall take place after this, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. Quite a vision that the Apostle John had to describe to us. As we contemplate this vision, let's begin with a word of prayer together. Let's pray. I thank you, Father, for bringing us together. We thank you that you are our God and Savior. We thank you that Jesus Christ stands among the lampstands today. That he is the head of our church. That he is the Savior who planned our salvation before the foundation of the earth. Who gave his life for us on the cross that we might be saved. Who lives forever at your right hand. Making intercession for us. And who will come again in glory. Lord, we, we look forward to that time of being reunited with our Savior, Jesus Christ. We look forward to next week when we we can be reunited with our church family. Lord, in all of these things, we give you the thanks and the praise, and we ask for your wisdom and direction. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We're studying through the book of Revelation together, and this is the the first in in a series of visions that John has. This is the first vision that God gives to him, and it's all about Jesus. But we would like to look at it from John's perspective. So Jesus is the focal point of the vision. Jesus is the star of the show. It's all about him. But for us to understand this, I think it would be good to to look at it from John's experience, how John encountered Jesus. Uh, That's that's what we're going to look at it from today's perspective. So we're going to look at John's encounter that he had with Jesus, and, and we are reminded that everybody needs a personal encounter with Jesus, that we must personally Respond to Jesus our Savior, Jesus is the Savior who came to this world. Jesus is the Savior who died on the cross for our sins, so he paid the price for our salvation. but we must accept it, we must respond, We must have a personal relationship with him. He makes all of those things available to us. He's there, He's calling out to us, he's reaching out to us, he's communicating with us, He wants us to have a personal relationship with him, but we must respond. We must accept the offer that Jesus has given to us. We must accept his offer of salvation. So we all must have a personal encounter with Jesus, uh, much like John. Now, John's is going to be different. Uh, Obviously, John has a unique experience here. He has the supernatural vision. And uh, we are not going to have a supernatural experience in the same way that John did. But there will be some points of similarity. There will be some things that we can learn that just like John experienced Jesus, so we should too, even though we don't have all of the the supernatural vision elements that John had. Uh, Just like uh, Saul of Tarsus, uh, as Saul was on his his road and he uh, witnessed Jesus, he experienced Jesus, that was a, a magnificent supernatural encounter that he had with Jesus. Not everybody is going to have an encounter like that. But in some ways, we all need a similar uh, relationship, a similar encounter with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's break it down from John's perspective and uh, see what we can learn from his encounter with our Savior. First of all, uh, John says that he was spiritually prepared. He gives us a little background. He tells us what led up to this vision and how he was prepared for this vision. So this is the background that he gives us in verse 9. He says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot in these few words to unpack here. Uh, First of all, he starts by making this point of connection with his readers, with his hearers. He says, I am your brother in Christ. I'm writing to the churches. I'm writing to the believers, to you who know Jesus and love Jesus and have been saved by his grace um, I'm writing to you, you are my brothers in Christ. and he's writing as a companion. I am your companion. I, I'm not uh, you know up on some lofty pedestal as the last living apostle uh, speaking down in authoritative fashion to all the underlings down there, all the lower ones who are not as spiritual or, or as aged and as wisdom as I am, or as wise as I am. He, he's, he's not coming across like that at all. He says, I'm one of you, I'm your brother. I'm your companion. Even though he is the last living apostle, all the other ones have have died by this time. He is an old man. The the year is probably about 95, 96 A.D., somewhere in that uh, period, that that time frame. And uh, so John himself is probably at least in his 80s. Maybe he's already 90 years old. So he's already an old man. And he's on the Isle of Patmos, and the Isle of Patmos is a prison island. That's where they send the prisoners to do slave labor there. Imagine a ninety-year-old man in prison doing slave labor. Well, that's what they did to John, and, and that's where he is. And he's giving his background. He says, I'm I'm even though I'm the, the last living apostle, and he's already written. Uh, the Gospel of John, he's already written three epistles of John, First John, Second John, Third John. And this is his final work, his final writing, the, the book of Revelation. He's already done all those things. He's already established himself as authoritative. But he said, I just want you to know that I'm your brother. I'm your companion. And, and we're in this tribulation together. He's in the tribulation of Jesus Christ. Now, some people latch onto that and say, oh, see, John is saying that we are in the tribulation, that John thought he was in the tribulation. Now, I don't think that's what he's saying. He's just speaking generally about the persecution, that the Roman government was persecuting the churches. Uh, Domitian was a w- well known for his persecution of Christianity, and he was the Roman emperor up until about 96 uh, AD. And so... Uh, I think that's what he was talking about. He says, you are being persecuted for your faith, and I am with you. I'm being persecuted for my faith. I'm out here on this prison island, the island of Patmos, and uh, that's where I am uh, in the tribulation of Jesus Christ, being persecuted for Jesus Christ. But he also says we're in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Now, again, when he says kingdom, he's not saying that we are in the final kingdom. He's not saying that. He's saying that uh, we are the the ones who recognize God's sovereignty we we recognize that Jesus is the king and we are trying to live according to his rules. Now, now, obviously, the rest of the world is not. The rest of the world does not acknowledge that Jesus is king. The rest of the world is in rebellion against the kingship of Christ. But he said, I'm I'm coming to you because we are part of the kingdom. We're, we're trying to follow our King Jesus. And one day he will come and he will establish the kingdom in the future. That hasn't happened yet. But he says, until then, we're still trying to follow him, the king, and trying to obey him and follow his rules. So we're in this together. We're in the the, uh, persecution together, the tribulation together. We are in the kingdom together. We're trying to follow Christ together. And we're in the patience together. That means that we are patiently awaiting his return, that we are looking for when he will come back. We are waiting for the rapture. We're waiting for Christ to come and to receive us unto himself, that we might be with him that's patiently waiting for Christ to come and to intervene. I mean, right now the Roman emperor and the Roman empire is in charge, and they're persecuting the Christians, and uh, we we are patiently waiting for Christ to act. That's that's what he's saying here. He says, I'm with you. We're in this together. We're suffering together in the tribulation, the persecution. We are trying to serve Christ together in his kingdom, and we are patiently waiting for Christ to return. And here he says he's on, he's on that island, in that prison island, for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, because he was faithful to Jesus, because he was preaching the word. That's why he was arrested and exiled to this island in Patmos. So that's the, the background that he gives. And then the, uh, this is the, um, the map of where Patmos is. So, so this is Asia Minor or Turkey now, and over, over here on this side is Greece. And the Isle of Patmos is that little black speck right there. That's a little island off the coast. And these are the seven churches that he's writing to. And they're described as the seven churches of Asia. When we think of Asia, we think of the continent of Asia, the big, huge continent of Asia. But that's not what this Asia is. Asia was the name of uh, the Roman province. So so this this province right here is the province of Asia. So Asia Minor was broken down into various provinces, and this was one of them. So it's a relatively small area compared to what we think of as Asia being this huge continent. Uh, No, we're talking about the Roman province of Asia and uh, the seven churches that are in that Roman province. And he's on this little island, this tiny little speck out there in the Aegean Sea or Mediterranean Sea uh, just off the coast of uh, Asia Minor. That's where he's writing. And uh, this is is what uh, John says in the next verse, in verse 10. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, again, this is a curious verse, and there's a lot in here. Let's start with the the Lord's day. What does he mean by the Lord's day? Well, there's two different ways you could look at it. Some people think he's talking about the day of the Lord, that in his vision, he was transported into the future where he could see the day of the Lord, the Lord's day. So that's one possibility. It's a theological possibility. It's a biblical possibility. It could be that he was uh, describing the Lord's day. The the other is more simple. And the simple uh, explanation is when he says the Lord's day, he was just talking about Sunday. The Lord's day is the day the Lord uh, was raised from the dead. And uh, so that became known as Sunday, the day of worship. And it became known as the Lord's day. Now, either way this is unique in scripture if it, if it means the day of the lord well whenever the scripture talks about the day of the lord it never talks about the lord's day it always says the day of the lord so if it's talking about the day of the lord this is the only time where it uses this phrase the lord's day to talk about the day of the lord if it's talking about sunday guess what it's the only time that that, that phrase is used to talk about sunday in the in the scripture so so either way it's going to be unique no matter which way it is um I would prefer, just from the, the context, the way it strikes I me, and again, I, I, like I said, it could be either one that he's talking about, but just from the context, I think uh, logically that he's probably talking about Sunday, that he's just saying that this was Sunday, and, and the reason he was saying that was because this was a, a special day to him. It was a day of worship for him, and that's probably what he was doing. He was probably worshiping and meditating upon his Savior, Jesus Christ, when he had this wonderful vision. So to, so to me, that's, that makes more sense and it's the simplest explanation that he, um, this was just Sunday and he described Sunday as the Lord's Day. So early church writers did indeed call Sunday the Lord's Day, but, but this is the only time in Scripture that it's used. So it is unique and, per, and the first time in Scripture and the only time in Scripture, but the early church fathers used that phrase a lot, frequently. It came to be a, a common expression. So I think the simplest explanation is that it was Sunday and that he was worshiping and he was spiritually prepared and that's why uh, he he records that. That's why he mentions the the Lord's Day here. So if that's what the Lord's Day means, then what does it mean that he was in the Spirit? And again, there's some ambiguity there. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what that means. I can give you a general idea. When he says he was in the Spirit, the general idea is that God was giving him a spiritual vision, that God was opening up his eyes so he could see spiritual things, so he could understand spiritual things, that he could get a glimpse into the spirit world. Now, we know the spirit world is true. We know that it's there. We know that it's all around us, but we can't see it or or encounter it or experience it. We know that there are angels and demons, that they're real, that they exist, that they're there, but we don't actually see them or encounter them or talk to them. But when he says, I was in the spirit, I think that just means that God opened his eyes so he could see the spiritual world, that God gave him a spiritual vision. So so generally, I think that's the concept. That's the idea. Now, specifically, what does that mean that's what I'm not sure about. I'm not sure. I, I try to imagine if I was there on the Isle of Patmos sitting next to John when this happened, uh, what would I see if I was watching John and he he experienced this vision? Uh, sometimes I imagine, well, he was probably just like unconscious. You know, his eyes are rolled back on his head and everything's going on in his mind. In his mind, it's like a dream almost, like where he sees everything and he's talking to Jesus. But I to me, I, I look at him and he's just like asleep. That's what it looks like. Uh, that's one way that it could have happened. Another way that it could have happened was I, I can picture me sitting next to him. And I can picture um, him hearing a voice and turning to me and saying, do you hear that? Do say, hear what? You know, maybe he hears something that I don't. And then he turns around and he sees this vision. And I see him looking at something, but I look and I don't see it. You know, so something like that happened, too. It happened with Paul. Uh, when Paul had his encounter with Christ, he saw Jesus, he talked to Jesus, but those that were around him did not know exactly what was going on. They heard something, but they didn't. Uh, they, they couldn't uh, experience exactly what Paul was experiencing. And so is that what happened? You know, if I was sitting there next to John, uh, would he be awake and conscious and hearing things and seeing things that I didn't hear and that I didn't see? I mean, that's a possibility too. Uh, did, did God's uh, actually remove his spirit from his body and transport his spirit somewhere, leaving his body there. Uh, you know, that's another uh, option that some people um, would, would guess or speculate about. So again, when it, when it says he was in the spirit, I'm not sure exactly what that means. Generally, it means that he can see the, the spiritual things and know, understand the spiritual things. But just exactly how that happened, I'm not sure. It is interesting that this phrase, in the Spirit, is used several times in the book of Revelation, and it's used to to introduce a new vision. So this vision is introduced by, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. But this, in the Spirit, phrase is used several times in Revelation. It's used again in Revelation 4, meaning that I was in the Spirit, and behold a throne. He was in the Spirit the second time, and he was in heaven. So the first time, he was on the Isle of Patmos, and he saw this vision of Jesus. The next time, he was in the Spirit, and he was in heaven. He was observing the throne of God in heaven. So again, did, did God actually transport his spirit into heaven, or did God transport his body and spirit into heaven? Or, or did it, is this just what something that he saw in his mind and his imagination? Again, I don't know exactly how all that works, but all I know is that he was in the spirit, he was given the spiritual vision. The, the next vision was in Revelation 17. He carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. So the first vision was on the Isle of Patmos. The second one was in heaven. And and by the way, that heavenly one covers most of the book. It's chapter 4 all the way through chapter 17. So that's really the the heart of the book. Most of the book is uh, viewed from the perspective of heaven, from the the, the view of God on his throne, that vision. And then in, in Revelation 17, he was carried away into the wilderness. And in this vision, he sees the wicked woman Writing the beast, the blasphemous woman Babylon, writing the beast. And then, so he sees Babylon and then he sees the fall, the destruction of Babylon, and, and the coming of Christ, too. He sees all those from the wilderness. And then at the end, in Revelation 21, he was carried in the spirit to a great high mountain. So he went from the Isle of Patmos up into heaven, out into the wilderness. And now on a high mountain, and on the high mountain, he sees the new Jerusalem descending. He sees the new heaven and the new earth, the great city of God, and all the perfect paradise conditions uh, that are on the earth after that. So it's it's interesting that that each uh, vision is in a different setting, a different location, but they're all introduced with the same phrase, in the spirit. So, So God is giving him the spiritual experience, God is letting him witness spiritual events. But uh, I don't know exactly how that happened. I don't know what it would look like if I was sitting next to John. What would that look like? I'm not sure. It's just uh, speculation. It's just a guess at this point. But uh, but he starts by saying, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I think he just mentions the Lord's day simply because it was Sunday and I was worshiping my Savior. I was drawing close to God. I was praying. I was meditating on scripture and he was ready. He was spiritually prepared for this vision that he would have of his savior. So that says something about us, doesn't it? That, yeah, we all need a personal encounter with Jesus, but you know, there's—you you can't wait for him to do all the work. You can't wait for him to show up and smack you in the face and, and introduce himself to you. You have to be prepared. You have to be ready to accept Him. You have to open your heart to Him. You have to, uh, you know, desire to know Him. John was spiritually prepared, and he had this wonderful vision of Jesus. Secondly, John heard the word. That's the first encounter he had. He was sitting on the island, minding his own business, probably uh, worshiping and meditating upon God, since it was the Lord's day, and uh, the, the first inclination that he had that Jesus was there was he heard something. He heard a voice. We see that in verse 10. He said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet saying, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. So the first thing he hears is a voice and the voice is loud like a trumpet meaning authoritative and true, making an important announcement And the first words he he hears are, I am the Alpha and Omega. He'd already mentioned that earlier in chapter one. But he says it again here in this vision later on in chapter one. And he says it again uh, at the end of the book in Revelation 22. Jesus says it again, I am the Alpha and Omega. So this is an important uh, aspect. He's writing about the end of time. And he wants you to know that Jesus was there at the beginning as the creator. Jesus will be there at the end when he wraps everything up. Jesus is the eternal one from the beginning. He's the first and the last. So the first thing that he hears is a word from the Savior. He hears Jesus. Do you remember John is the one that wrote John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. It says that the Savior, Jesus, is the communication, the word. You have the spoken word here in this text, Uh, Jesus tells John to write, so we have the written word, you have the spoken word, you have the written word, I'm glad that we have the written word, because it's unchanging, it's black and white, it's right before us, we can study it, we can memorize it, we can meditate on it, and uh, we need that written word of God, Jesus is the living word, in the beginning was the living word, the eternal word, Jesus is the living word of God. John is also the one that wrote John chapter 10, where Jesus was teaching about the shepherd and and the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He said that my sheep hear my voice. Jesus speaks as the good shepherd and the sheep hear his voice. So that was part of John's encounter. That was the first part of John's encounter. He heard the word of God. He heard his Savior Jesus speaking. So he was spiritually prepared. He heard the word. And then thirdly, he saw. He turned and he saw the risen Savior. We see that in the verses 12 and 13. He says, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw. Now let's look at this description. And we'll cover it in detail later on. But look at it for now. He saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white, like wool, white as snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. His voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun in its strength. So you put all this together and you get something like this. Now, I'm not sure if this is an accurate representation or not, but this is something like what what John saw on the Isle of Patmos. It has most of the elements that we just read. It has the, the white hair and the radiant uh, white, um, like, Glory coming off of him. It's got the gold waistband around him. It's got the seven lampstands, the seven stars in his hand. There's even I don't know if you can see it, but there's even a little sword coming out of his mouth there uh, that the artist tried to, to put in there. So it's, it's got all. Oh, and his feet are like a brass. It's got all the elements that John described. It's something like this. Now, now this is not what Jesus looked like in his earthly ministry. This is not how John remembers him. John was with Jesus. John remembered Jesus. John was there at the cross when he died. Remember that? Jesus did not look like this. This is a different description of him. In fact, Jesus shows up in another vision in John chapter 5, and he doesn't look like this at all. In John chapter 5, he looks like a lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Very different. He comes again in in, uh, chapter 19 of Revelation, and he does kind of look like this with a few different things. He looks like this, only he's got crowns on his head and he's riding a white horse. He's coming as king now. But he also has the sword coming out of his mouth and he has the glorious raiment and all that. So it's similar to this, only a few different uh, nuances. So, so I think the, the reason I'm saying this is because this is symbolic. There's a lot of symbolism in, in, in the book of Revelation. And this is a symbolic picture that each element of the picture is teaching us something. It's, there's a lot of symbolism. So so we could uh, look at sim- symbolism in different ways. Look at political symbolism. There's a lot of political symbolism out there, isn't there? I don't know if any of you are Trump supporters or not, but if you are a Trump supporter, uh, here's a, a symbol of President Trump. Here he is, and and this symbol is supposed to inspire patriotism and love of country and military power and economic supremacy and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but nobody takes this literally. Right? Nobody wants Trump to literally come into town riding on a tank and all that kind of stuff. It's not a literal picture. It's it's symbolic. It, it it's meant to inspire the right kind of feelings in us. But if you hate Trump, that probably inspires the wrong kind of feelings in you. But it but it's symbolism. It's not a literal picture. It's not an actual photograph. All right. So 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 this is symbolic. It's not what Jesus really looks like. When I get to heaven and I see Jesus, it's not really going to literally look like this. Now, it might seem like that to me, but when my first eyes first see him, it's like, whoa, you know, all the glory. It, it will kind of seem like that to me, but it's not meant to be taken that this is literally what he looks like, or, or he's not literally going to look like a lamb. That's symbolic. So, so let's look at the symbolism now and, and break down the symbolism piece by piece. Fortunately, we have A divine interpretation of a couple elements of this. Jesus tells us two things about this. He tells us what the lampstands are. He tells us the lampstands are the churches, the seven churches. We don't have to guess about that. He tells us what they are. And this is the wonderful thing about about the symbolism, that that when there is symbolism, uh, we usually get a hint that this is symbolism. And we get a hint from other scripture. We're comparing other scripture what it stands for. And you'll see a lot of that. To understand this symbolism, we have to compare it with other scripture. We have to compare it with the Old Testament. But Jesus gives us the first couple, and then he kind of leaves us on our own for the rest. He says, all right, that's how you do it. Uh, Each element stands for something. Now you figure out what the other ones are. So he gives us a couple of the answers, but we still have to do some of the work on our own and figure out what some of the other symbolism stands for. But the, the seven lampstands, he says very clearly, are the seven churches. And to me, this is key. To understanding it and this is the most comforting of of all the elements that are in this symbolism here the seven lampstands i think are the most comforting where did john see jesus where was jesus he's among the churches he's standing there in church he's where the people of god are that's where jesus is the presence of our Savior is in his church. It's in his, his body, his people. And again, I, I don't mean to you know, keep beating on a dead horse and repeating this over and over again. But, but you and I are familiar with people who say, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. And yes, I love Jesus. I follow after Jesus, but I can't stand church. And so I stay away from church. It, it doesn't work that way. If you love Jesus, where is Jesus? He's among the lampstands. He's at church. If you want to serve Jesus, you'll go to church. And sure, there's annoying people there. Sure, there's people that are going to hurt your feelings and say things that you don't agree with. I'm sure your pastor is going to say things you don't agree with. It happens all the time. Just think how Jesus feels. His whole church is like that, you know, and yet he's the head of the church and he loves the church. And there he is in the midst of his church. You can't follow Jesus without going to his people. You can't follow Jesus without being part of his church because that's where Jesus is. And to me, that's that's key to understanding this. Jesus dwells in His people, in His church, and that is the the first part that we know for sure because Jesus told us what it was. What about the the white hair? Um, again, it symbolizes age and wisdom, but He is from eternity, and um, it's kind of like the ancient of days in. Daniel, Daniel had a vision, and his vision was of a white-haired one who sat upon the throne. So again, it symbolizes age and wisdom and maturity, and uh, maybe uh, also purity and radiance along with that. His eyes are like fire. What does that symbolize? It symbolizes uh, this penetrating vision that he sees all, that he knows all. He can see through all the deception and lies that are out there. He sees right through it and pierces down to the truth. The, the the vision of God. The sword coming out of his mouth. We know what that is. Scripture tells us. Paul tells us, tells us that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. Hebrews 4 says the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. So it's speaking about the word of God. The spoken word of Jesus is authoritative and true and final and will come to pass. It is the word of God. What about the the garments with the golden belt? Well, again, if you compare this to the Old Testament, This is a priestly garment. He stands as priest among his church. He is the the great high priest. He is both the priest in Revelation 1 and he is the sacrifice in Revelation chapter 5. He's both the priest and the lamb. He's the the priest who offers the lamb and he is the lamb who lays down his life at the same time. So it speaks to his priestly role. What about the feet of brass? Again, the feet of brass symbolize judgment. And again, when he comes in Revelation 19 as the king of kings, he's trampling out the winepress of the wrath of God with his feet of brass. It's the judgment of God upon sin. So it speaks of his judgment. What about the stars in his hand? Uh, This is both clear and unclear. It's clear because Jesus tells us what it is. Jesus says the seven stars in his hand are the angels, the seven angels. So we know from Jesus' interpretation that the seven stars are the seven angels. But then the question is, well, what, who are the seven angels? You know, what does the seven angels mean? And that's a little more tricky because it could be that each church of the seven churches, each church has their own um, divine angel, their own heavenly angel watching out for their church. That's kind of cool. I would like to think that would be true, that each church has an angel. That'd be kind of cool. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is that the angel is the uh, the human messenger. The, the word angel means messenger. Sometimes it's used, in fact, most of the time in Revelation, it's used of angelic uh, heavenly angels. But sometimes it's used of human messengers in the in the New Testament. In the New Testament, um, you remember the story of John the Baptist when he was arrested? He sent his, a couple of his disciples to Jesus to ask him a question. And it says John sent his angels, the, the the Greek word is angels, his messengers. He he wasn't sending angelic heavenly messengers. He was sending his disciples, his human messengers. And the, it uses that word also of the, do uh, you remember the spies that went into the land and, and Rahab housed the spies in Jericho? It describes them as messengers. It describes them as angels. They were the human messengers. They were the human messengers. Uh, even though they use the term angels, they weren't the, the heavenly divine angels. They were the human messengers. So, so it could be that he's the stars are the pastors of the church, the human leaders, the human messengers. And again, it could be either one. We don't know which one. Either one is is a logical, uh, acceptable um, view to have. I'll, I'll give you my view. My view, and my view is not based on. You know, my my theological understanding, it's not based on, you know, if you dig down deep enough into the Word, you'll discover that this is what it is for sure. No, it's it's not based on that at all. My view is just based on my own logic. And I'll admit my own logic, gets twisted sometimes. But uh, based on my own logic, to me, it makes more sense. The simplest understanding is that he's talking about the the human pastors of the church because he tells John, write a letter to the seven angels of the churches. So it doesn't make as much sense to me that, that John is going to write a letter to a heavenly divine angel. Uh, that just doesn't quite fit the the, the flow of things. Now, I, I can understand if God sent the angel to tell John something, I can understand that because that is the usual flow. God sends the angel, the angel reports to man. Uh, that's usually the way things happen. But for, for God to tell John, John, write this down and give it to a heavenly angel. Uh, that doesn't make as much sense to me. If you're going to write something down, you're writing it down for human people to, to hear and understand. And you remember, he already said, remember when he gave the blessing at the beginning of the, of the book in chapter one, he said, blessed is he who reads and blessed are they who hear. So he's writing this intended to be read by one person, and be heard by others, to be read publicly in the worship service. That's the, the reason he wrote it. So he was to me. It makes just more common sense that he was writing to the pastor, so that the pastor could read it to the congregation, so that the congregation could together worship the Lord together in His Word. To, to me, that makes the most logical sense. So again, it's not based on theology or word study or anything like that. It's just that the way I see things flowing logically. It makes more simple sense. So we know that in His hand are the seven stars, and the seven stars are the angels. And my guess is that the angels are the pastors of the church. So if my interpretation is true, then, then I am the star of First Baptist Church in Nebraska City. So that's that's why I think my interpretation is awesome. It's amazing. It must be the right interpretation because the, the stars are the pastors of the churches. So I'm, I'm glad we don't have a congregation out here today. Anyway, next week you can mock me and ridicule me for that. the The, the whole view is that Jesus was uh, there appearing to John and that John saw the risen Savior. It was symbolic, this vision that he had, but it was symbolism of his glory and his power, and uh, John saw this Savior. The next thing that John did was he reacted to Christ. He had this reaction to him. In verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. He he saw this glorious vision, and he was overwhelmed. He was a 90-year-old guy, after all. You know. And here he is on Sunday, worshiping God, and all of a sudden, boom, you know, he's surrounded by glory, and he hears this, these fantastic things, and he sees these amazing sights, and poof, he's dead. I mean, he, he already had one foot in the grave anyway. He's 90 years old, but now you know, it's, it's just like he's passed out. They're like unconscious, like he's comatose. You, you kind of get that impression here from his response. And this is to be expected. This would be a common. Uh, In fact, I would expect that if I saw this vision, I would have the same reaction to it. Um, And people who have seen a vision like this do have similar reactions to it. And you you see that throughout Scripture. So, So John's reaction is to be expected. But notice what Jesus does. Jesus reaches out and touched him. He touched him the touch of Jesus is a a wonderful thing, isn't it? And uh, I'm I'm sure John remembered the the loving touch of his Savior. I'm I'm sure John remembered the times when Jesus touched people and healed them. I'm sure John remembers the time that he was at the, the Last Supper and he was They're right next to Jesus, reclining upon his breast is the way it's described there, that they were together, that they were touching each other. And and I'm sure John remembers that. Perhaps John remembers even the the lepers, the lepers who were unclean, who you have to stay six feet away from. You have to socially distance from the lepers because they're contagious and unclean. And yet what did Jesus do? Jesus went up and touched the lepers. The, The touch of Jesus is an amazing thing. And uh, I know we, we kind of miss touch now. To, I, I miss shaking hands now. We can't shake hands anymore. And, and, and I miss that. You know, Giving hugs, shaking hands, uh, those are things that we have to be careful about now and stay away from now. And I'm looking forward to the day when we can do those things again. But here, here John was uh, overwhelmed by this vision. He passed out as though he were dead and Jesus touched him. So, so this was the response that John had, and Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. You remember the Alpha and Omega? The first and the last. He who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive again. Remember, John, you saw me. You were there at the cross. Remember, I spoke to you from the cross. I said, woman, behold your son, and behold your mother. Uh, You were there at the cross. You saw me die. I'm the one who lives, was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Jesus is the Savior. He's the one who decides who goes which direction when you die, the gates of Hades and of death. He is the one in whose hand all of us are in his hand. Our our future is in his hand, and he is the Savior. So this, again, is how John reacted to Jesus. And then uh, John gave him a simple command. He was commissioned by Christ, Uh, Christ just simply said, write. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place. By the way, this is a threefold outline, and it's simple to remember. This is an outline of the entire book. Write, first of all, the things which you have seen. That's chapter one. That's what he's writing about right now. He's writing about the vision that he saw on the Isle of Patmos. On the Isle of Patmos, he saw a vision of Christ, and he wrote about it. That's the things which you have seen. He wrote that. That's chapter one of Revelation. Then he says, write about the things which are. That's chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation. It's his letters to the churches. The churches, that's where Jesus is. Jesus is among the the lampstands of the churches. That's where he is active today, through his church, through his body. That's what's going on now. That's the things which are. The things which are now are the church and the letters to the church. So in chapters 2 and 3, he writes the letters to the church, the churches which are today. So the things which are, which you have seen is chapter one, the things which you have, uh, which are, that's chapter two and chapter three. What about the things which will take place after this? Well, that's chapter four till the end of the book. It's those things which are in the future. It's just a simple, brief outline, but it's an an outline of the whole book of Revelation right there. Now, most of it falls under step three there. Most of the book is about the things which will take place after this. But the first three chapters can be broken down in uh, the first two points of that outline. The things which you have seen, the vision, and the things, which are the things which are going on in the churches right now. And the final one is the things which will take place in the future. So this is John's encounter with God. And you can see some parallels there that, that we should follow. Now, we won't see everything that John saw or hear everything that John heard. But we should be spiritually prepared like John was spiritually prepared. He was worshiping on the Lord's day and he was ready. Uh, We should hear the word. We can't be saved without the word of God. If you are saved, you're saved because you heard the word from somebody, somewhere. Somebody told you the word. Somebody shared with you the word. Uh, You read the word through the scripture or through a track or something like that. Somehow the word got to you. You heard the word and you responded in saving faith. So we should hear the word just like, like uh, John did, not audibly like John did, but through the written word like we have today. John saw the risen Savior. Again, we won't be able to see a, a same vision like John did, but we should be drawn to, to Christ more and more and know him more and more and see him more clearly spiritually as we study the word uh, and, and draw closer to him. And then we should have a reaction just like John had a reaction. Uh, John was overwhelmed, and, and so we should be overwhelmed. We should be overwhelmed by our salvation, that, that that Christ died for me, that, that Christ saved me, that, that all I have to do is believe on him, and, and I'm forgiven. All my sins are cleansed, and I'm forgiven, and I have eternal life, and he'll come again for me, and I'll spend eternity with him. I mean, I mean that's a glorious promise, and we should be overwhelmed by that. And then John was commissioned, just a reminder that, that, yeah, Jesus saved us. He died for us to be our Savior, but he didn't save us just so that we can sit around and wait for him to come back. He saved us so that we could be active, so that we could do something. We do have a job. We, do have, we have a great commission. The great commission is to go into all the world to preach the gospel, to spread his word, to tell others, to share others. We have a great commission. We, we, we should be obedient. Uh, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That is our, our commission. That's our job. We're supposed to follow after our Savior. It should change our lives. We all must personally encounter Jesus and respond to him in faith. Let's close with a word of prayer.